Take your Bibles and we'll go back to 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, let me give you an update of where we're headed with our preaching schedule over the next couple of days, or weeks rather. Um, next week, if we followed our path on Mother's Day, we'd be with David and Bathsheba. Now that might be okay, there might be some lessons for us there. I'm sure there are, it's God's word and we don't follow Hallmark calendar to set our preaching calendar. But I did think it might be encouraging for us to stick with these themes and review. I've asked Pastor Stephen to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, Hannah's prayer. In that prayer, it really gives us a guideline for all of what's happening in uh, the books of Samuel. So we're looking forward to hearing from 1 Samuel chapter 2 next week. Uh, the following week, I'll be out of town for much of that week at a conference, a workshop. Um, so I've asked Pastor Jonathan to preach that following week, and he's going to uh, preach a parallel psalm. So he'll be in Psalm 89, talking about Christ, or rather David, as God's king that points us to Christ. This morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Do you think it's possible to so emphasize God's kindness that we minimize his just and righteous judgments. What do you think? Is it possible for us to emphasize God's love, the positive aspects, what we see as his positive aspects, his positive character, and miss vital aspects of his nature? Do you think it's even likely that we do so? Because we want to emphasize these more positive aspects. Is our tendency then toward an unbalanced and even sub-biblical view of our God? Do we have a truncated, a half view of God, the way he's presented in scripture? I was listening to a podcast this week that was discussing a biblical view of hell, and the overwhelming point in that discussion was to address the question of have we lost a truly biblical view of God's righteous judgment on sin? Because we would rather hear the more favorable parts of the gospel. We've heard and we know that Jesus spoke more frequently and in greater detail of hell than he spoke of heaven. This discussion made me think, it made me evaluate whether or not I've embraced a more therapeutic view of God, even unintentionally at times. Because it's not pleasant to think of his wrath. That's hard. It's not easy to focus on his just punishment of our sin. What is your view of his holy and righteous judgment? What do you think is lost if we only ever emphasize the kindness of God and we forsake Warning against his judgment. What is lost? Is it possible that we're losing something of the beauty of the gospel that the Bible itself records for us? We don't get to tell the Bible what we want to hear. We submit ourselves to it in its entirety, in its fullness. 
This week I came across an article on the topic of hell and it began some time ago. R.C. Sproul was asked which doctrine he struggles with most. He replied, hell. It's comforting to know that a theologian like Sproul wrestles with something that I've struggled with my whole Christian life, the author writes. The doctrine of hell is uncomfortable for most of us. However, our understanding of hell shapes our view of the gospel, God's holiness, our depravity. If we don't accept the reality of hell, we won't rightly understand the glory of the gospel. Picture it like this. How does a jeweler demonstrate the brilliance of his gems? Doesn't he place his gems on a black velvet cloth to allow the contrasting colors and textures of those gems to radiate their brilliance? Without the very bad news of God's holy wrath, his settled opposition to punish sin eternally in hell, We minimize the extreme glory of the gospel. We dull its beauty. Now our passage this morning does not directly address hell. But it's a challenging passage in that it's a warning. It provides to us a contrast from chapter 9. In order to understand what God is teaching us in chapter 10 and why the divine author arranged these chapters this way, we need to understand the value of seeing God's judgment on the rejection of his king. This passage demonstrates what happens to God's enemies. And we should not shy away from truths that can be hard for us at times. This passage demonstrates what God does to those who scorn and reject the kindness of his king. And it's an important and needed warning. Our text will highlight that God defends the honor of his king through the utter defeat of his enemies. Let's look at 2 Samuel now, chapter 10. We'll read verses 1 through 5. This is God's word to us, his people. Verse 1. After this, so after what we saw in chapter 9, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this text together this morning. Father, We come before you expressing our need to understand your word clearly, to understand your character and nature. Lord, even as I studied this week, this isn't how I would have thought to communicate truths 
that you've deemed important for us to see. Help us to submit ourselves to your word. The passages that are so compelling and the passages that challenge us. Help us to think clearly and carefully and well. Submit our hearts and minds to you again today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we'll consider together first the kindness of God's king in verses 1 through 5. The response of God's king in defense of his people in verses 6 through 14. And finally, the victory of God's king in verses 15 through 19. So first, the kindness of God's king. Chapter 10 begins, after this, the king of the Ammonites died and his son reigned in his place. Now the organization of these chapters is arranged in such a way as to highlight the themes of God's work through his king David rather than presenting a strict historical chronology. The after this, as I mentioned in verse 1, refers to David's fulfillment of his covenant with Jonathan in chapter 9. It's a link to that chapter that preceded it. And what we see first is that God's king, again, shows surprising kindness in verses 1 and 2. The Ammonites first appeared in the books of Samuel at the beginning of Saul's reign. They're a constant oppressive enemy to their east. Their king Nahash had made cruel and unnecessary threats to the city of Jabesh-Gilead. We read of it in 1 Samuel 11. In verses 1 and 2 of that chapter we read, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. So they're attacking Israel when they're weak. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. This is a wicked king. He's cruel. He's seeking to inflict undeserved shame on the Israelites. When they come to him seeking a treaty, they're recognizing he's more powerful than they. And yet, incredibly, at some point after this, it seems that David has made a treaty with this king. Most likely, it's as David is running from Saul. He's the recipient of this kingness, uh, king's kindness, rather, of some kind, and they make some kind of an alliance. Now, there's a word used in verse 2 that is supposed to immediately grab our attention. Did you see it? It links this, chap- this chapter with chapter 9. I'll read it to you in the New American Standard. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just just as his father showed kindness to me. Do you see it now? It's the word kindness or loyalty. It's the exact same Hebrew word expressed in David's treatment of Mephibosheth. In that chapter, we saw David showing steadfast love to an enemy inside the nation of Israel. A son of King Saul. Here we have God's king demonstrated kindness toward an enemy outside of God's people. And remember the lesson we saw in last week's text. Those who best understand that they are undeserving recipients of God's grace are the most eager to show it. Now, David does more than just feel kindness toward this man here in these first five verses. He's going to do more than just feel for this man who's lost his father. He takes action to show him kindness. 
It is good and right to show kindness to those who have suffered loss. It is good and right to show compassion to those even who are not normally within our circles. Do you see David is reaching out and again showing loyalty. This is God's king who demonstrates grace to the enemies of God's people. We have had as a church family several opportunities to practice this recently, haven't we? I'm so grateful for the abundance of compassion and kindness that you as a church body have shown to fellow believers. In God's strange providence, we don't always understand it. We are dealing with a season of loss. We have a number of family members, who've, uh, church family members, who've lost someone in their family recently or are about to, very likely. Yesterday and this past week was an opportunity for you to demonstrate this kind of kindness and how encouraging it has been to see you rise to the occasion to do the work of ministry. I commented to our staff just how proud I am of our body in this, how God has grown us, how quickly you've responded to serve. This is a mark of God's grace in our lives. And I want it to be seen as something more than just southern hospitality or just a part of the church culture. This is what God calls us to do for one another, both inside and outside the church. May we continue to show this kind of care and hospitality to one another as a reflection of his grace to us. We'll certainly have more opportunities to do so. Secondly, God's king is shown undeserved scorn. It's unclear as to the reason why Hanan's advisors use this tactic to slander David. This is the hinge on which the whole rest of the chapter will will flow, will turn. The accusation of spying is not a new one. It's been used in scripture before, back in Genesis, when a king was looking for a reason to fight, to expand his territory perhaps. And rather than treating David's men with the respect and honor they should have been afforded based on his father's alliance, Hanan humiliates them in an incredible, in a devastating way. His treatment of these men would have desecrated their bodies, their clothes, and their national mission, theologically. To forcibly remove an Israelite male's beard was to force him to violate God's law. And it showed contempt for him as a man. It was intended to embarrass and shame and humiliate him. To put him down. To stomp on him. They almost certainly shaved the beard in half vertically. So the only other way to treat it was to cut the rest off yourself. It was a symbolic act seeking to emasculate these men. And then to cut off their garments, leaving their private parts and their backside exposed in public is almost beyond description. Imagine these men having to suffer this sophomoric prank as a means of public shame and humiliation and then fleeing that city in such a state. Here they come as emissaries of a king in alliance with you, and this is how you treat them? They would have had to run out of the city past the Ammonites, roaring with laughter at their shame. 
The outrage of this king's actions is virtually a declaration of war. There could be no other response. And it's perhaps likely that this was his intention all along. I tend to think it was. Now, how does this passage, with what we'll see of all these battles, fit into what we saw several chapters ago in chapter 8? How do these two work together? It seems best to understand that chapter 8 is providing us at that point a summary of David's military career throughout his life. His entire military career. Chapter 10 then serves as a bridge between chapters 9 and 11. It provides the setting for what we'll see of David's sin with Bathsheba. And it's the final chapter for quite a while in 2 Samuel in which we're to see David in a positive light. Third, God's king shows gracious concern. Consider how David could have responded here. He could have had these men come back in this condition to be seen by the men of Israel, to stir up their wrath, their desire for revenge over this injustice. But instead, he sends messengers immediately to intercept them So that they can as soon as possible find refuge in the first city west of the Jordan on the main road back to Jerusalem. He wants to care for them. He's acting as a gracious king. Providing with them with the opportunity to wait to return until their shame has ended. God's king cares deeply about addressing the shame of his people. And he makes provision for their restoration. You see the picture that David is meant to be for us? Of God's king? Of God's future king? Secondly, we, re- we see the response of God's king in verses 6 through 14. Let's look down again at verse 6 and continue our reading. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David... The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was sent against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians. And they, the Syrians, fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. The tension in the story appears in verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. 
Again, all the conflict in this chapter builds off of Hanan's foolish response to the king's kindness. Now, what other response could Hanan and the Ammonites have given once they realized that this is going to cause national conflict? They could have repented. They could have apologized, sought to make up for their foolish actions right away. Pastor Rick Phillips comments, even worse than committing a sin is a refusal to apologize for and repent of it. It never seems to have occurred to the Ammonites that David might forgive their evil against his servants. So they instead prepare for a bitter and very costly war. Just consider, what are you afraid of losing when it comes to the moment where you're faced with the decision to repent Or to double down? What are you afraid of losing before your spouse or a friend or even your children? How dangerous our pride is. What will it cost you if you refuse to apologize and repent? Consider that cost of repentance and compare it with the cost of refusing to do so. In verses 6 through 8, we see the provoked response of David. Now, this chapter can seem in many ways to be disjointed. We have this army and this group of men coming, and, and they're coming here and there. And it can seem unclear as to the overriding theme of the chapter. But I believe it functions as an illustration of what we read in Psalm 2. And God's defense of his king. Listen to verses 1 through 3 and see if you can hear the parallels to what we're seeing in 2 Samuel 10. Verse 1 of Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. I want you to see a map. Can we put that up there? And there we see to the right we see Ammon. It's immediately to the east of the Israelites. And then the Syrians are to the northeast. Now what you have in the green is the expanded kingdom of David. What will happen by the end is again, like chapter 8, the victories of David is growing the nation of Israel. God is accomplishing his purposes even through this evil, the evil choices of this king. Perhaps we should see the Ammonites as actually having planned this in order to break their alliance with David. I think Hanan shames David's ambassadors in order to provoke this war or else he's incredibly, stupidly blinded by his pride. David sends Joab with all the hosts of the mighty men. The battle lines are drawn, but a dangerous military situation is arising for Joab and God's people. So secondly, in this section, we see the surprising faith of Joab. Joab we haven't heard from for many chapters. And again now we see his skill as a military leader and even something surprising in his theology, in his thinking. We read when Joab saw the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. It's he's surrounded. 
He acts. He chooses some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. He's caught with enemies before and behind him. He's trapped. He's surrounded. They have the upper hand completely. This is a dangerous and desperate situation. The Ammonite reinforcements, Ammonites reinforcements, the Syrians, had arrived just in time to trap them, to squeeze them, to put them in a pincer move. Joab devises a very daring but risky plan. He will actually attack on both fronts at the same time, dividing and essentially weakening his forces. Joab says, I'll take the best of the mighty men and I'll I'll attack the late arriving Syrians. And you, Abishai, and the rest of the army attack the Ammonites who are holding the ground in front of their city. Now, as the narrator records his instructions, Joab emphasizes three things. First, he encourages Abishai to be courageous. He is to use every resource at his disposal. Notice this, courage is a choice to be made. It's a choice to be made in the face of danger. Second, he urges them to fight bravely for God's people. They're not seeking personal glory, but are defending God's own people. Joab wants them to consider all they have to lose here. This battle is bigger than themselves, and they must keep that in mind. And then third, he states, may the Lord do what seems good to him. The NIV translates the Hebrew with even more certainty. It says, the Lord will do what is good in his sight. Now that difference might appear to be minor. One is stated as a wish or request, the other as an affirmation. I think the second better fits Joab's perspective here. In this statement, Joab is placing his confidence in the will of his God. He doesn't know the outcome of this battle. He doesn't say, I know God will deliver us. He says, the Lord will do what is good in his sight. That's encouraging in a way, isn't it? How many situations do we face in our lives? Well, we, we don't know the outcome. We can't know the outcome. We haven't been given a specific promise on the outcome. They might perish in the battle. But the outcome was the Lord's. Now this confidence expressed by Joab reminded me of what Jonathan had said to his armor bearer in 1 Samuel 14. They pursue what seems like a foolish charge against a Philistine force that's in a superior position. Remember, they're coming up the hill to a garrison. Many more men than they had. And Jonathan says to the young man who carries his armor, go. Or rather, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Or remember Mordecai's words to Esther when her time comes to take a stand for God's people and risk her life. He says to her, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The lesson here is that faith doesn't demand all the answers. It casts itself on God in spite of remaining questions. We don't know what God might be doing in our circumstances, but we do know the character of our God. He's to be trusted 
He can be trusted implicitly without hesitation or reservation. One author notes, Joab will apply his forces and strategic genius to the full. But as a believer, he remains aware at the same time that the decision rests in God's hands. And he resolves himself to this. Another writes, Joab understood that no matter how bravely he behaved, all his forces could do nothing unless God gave the victory. What uncertainties has God allowed in your life in which you're to exercise this kind of confidence in him? God has not promised us that we will never face hardship. He's not promised us that we'll never lose dearly loved ones, that we'll never face a devastating accident. He's not promised that we will not be deeply hurt by the betrayal of a loved one, even a spouse or a child. He's not promised that we will never be lonely or afraid. What he has promised is that we can trust him through the unknown, through our anxiety, through our fear. He's promised that all things, and he means all things, work together for good. Not in our time, not in our way, not in our possession, our perception always, but in his own. So this leaves us to live and labor in the way that Psalm 127.1 says. It describes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That verse tells us we must work and we must trust. We have work to do, choices to make, disciplines to put on. But we must do so as Job does, or Joab does here with confidence that God is going to accomplish his will. There's a medical missionary named Don McClure who served in Sudan in the mid-1900s. A converted native came to the missionary seeking medical attention for his son. His son had been fishing in the river and had been bitten by a very poisonous puff adder. The missionary recounted that the boy's father was surprisingly calm. This wasn't how he had been before he had been converted. When McClure asked him why he was so calm in the face of this stressful situation, the believing native replied, if the medicine does not help him, our prayers will. And if he dies, our lives are in God's hand. He was echoing Joab's trusting statement here, Jehovah will do what is right, always. Pastor Dale Ralph Davis concludes, faith does not mean that we have no uncertainties, but faith is confidently leaving our uncertainties in the hands of our God. Jehovah will do what he deems right. Thirdly, the overwhelming defeat of the enemies. It's interesting to note the language of this text summarizing the victory of Joab and the army of Israel. Certainly it's abrupt, but look it down again at verse 13. Notice how he records the battle. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians. And the conflict was great. No, it doesn't say that. All the narrator records for us is, and they fled before him. They ran away. We're not even told two swords clashed. We don't know what happened. 
All we know is Joab won. He routed the enemy. The narrator summarizes this in such a way as to exclude any details of actual conflict. His point is to explain the Israelites are completely victorious. Look down again at verse 14 and notice how he uses this word fled two more times. Again, without any details of actual conflict. The verb is used a fourth time in verse 18. Deuteronomy 28.7 says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. In Leviticus 26, God says, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Do you think Joab's faith was rewarded in this case? Was proven true? Was confirmed? This isn't Israel's victory. This is God's. God causes the enemies of his people to flee, and he does it again and again. Doesn't this again parallel what we read in Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you see this is fulfilled both in David, but even more so in David's greater son. Doesn't it seem like the narrator is painting the picture that these thousands of men who stand as the enemies of God's people are laughably small and insignificant in their resistance and threat? Think of it. Joab and his army are in a terrible position militarily. They're surrounded. They don't have enough forces to go at both sides. But with God, it doesn't matter. Five will chase a hundred. A hundred will chase ten thousand. And all we're told here is the Syrians, these two massive nations, those that they've gathered with them, and the Ammonites are the ones who flee. Now at the end of verse 14, we're told the Ammonites have fled back into their city. We're going to come back to that city in a few chapters. And all we're told in just this narrative note is that Joab returns to Jerusalem. It seems to me this is the point at which the events of chapter 11 occur. At this point in chapter 10, the conflict with the Ammonites is over. It doesn't resume again until 11-1 when Joab goes out to besiege the city they've just run into. And it's not resolved until chapter 12, 26 through 31. So that story is still being written. Lastly, we see the victory of God's king. Look down now at the end of the chapter. We continue reading in verse 15. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. 
And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. And wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The rest of the chapter deals with David's conflict with Syria to the northeast of Israel. The king has entered the field. It's likely they feared that David would respond to their allegiance with the Ammonites, so they attack Israel. They're seeking to strike the first blow. They regroup and prepare for another greater assault. But the king has entered the field of battle. David is now leading the forces of Israel, and the narrator records the same outcome. They're completely devastated. The Syrians fled before Israel. Verse 19, the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. Again, notice the final parallel with Psalm 2. I can't help but think these are meant to work together. Verse 10 of Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So they made peace with Israel. Now what is the significance of chapter 10 in the storyline of 2 Samuel. Why is this abrupt record of a few more victories included here at this point in the story? It was especially challenging this week to understand this chapter's purpose in the storyline of 2 Samuel. And I'm not completely confident I understand exactly what the narrator is doing. But I think after careful consideration, there are some important lessons for us here. First, we've said that this chapter provides the setting for what we see of David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11 and 12. But secondly, and more for our consideration this morning, it presents a contrast with chapter 9. And I think that's the main thing it's doing. Remember, these stories are arranged to serve as an extended sermon to God's people. So chapters 9 and 10 describe two contrasting ways in which we can respond to God's king. In chapter 9, Mephibosheth responded to the kindness, the undeserved, unprovoked, loyal love of God's king with humility and submission. In chapter 10, Hanan responds to the undeserved kindness and loyal love of God's king with suspicion, scorn, and rejection. And at what cost? Do you see the warning now of chapter 10? The narrator wants us to see that every bad thing, every life lost, happened to God's enemies because they rejected the kindness of his king. 
In Romans 2, 4, and 5, in describing God's just judgment on sin, Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see these themes running in parallel? Paul's writing to all mankind as sinners. You have a choice for how you will respond to the kindness of God's king. So there are two groups of people who need to hear this warning this morning. There are those who've heard God's undeserved kindness in the gospel through Jesus offered again and again. Christ came into this world to save sinners, to offer sinful men and women the most undeserved gift of his kindness, himself. Do not reject that kindness this morning. Maybe for years you've done so because outwardly you look like you're doing fine. You fit in among Christians. But you scorn God's kindness through Jesus in your heart. He's not your king. There are some who are blinded by ungodly temporal contentment with this life. Because you cannot see God's certain judgment on the sin of those who reject him, you assume that it's not coming. Psalm 2 commands, kiss the son, bow the knee to God's king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. God is loving to warn you of judgment. So the call is to turn to him from your sin. You cannot, you cannot go your own way and live. That option, as we've seen illustrated here, only leads to death and judgment. The second group of people who need to heed this warning is believers. Do not take advantage of God's kindness by choosing to live in whatever manner most pleases you. Do not act like you don't have a king. Are you tolerating sin in your life because you're presuming upon this incredible kindness of God? Are you scorning God's king this morning by arrogantly seeking to control your own life as if you are the sovereign? Are you living and thinking that because you're not experiencing the discipline of God today, that it will not come? Are there areas of your life where you know you are consciously disobeying him? Are there areas of your life where you're outright ignoring him or pushing him aside? And your scorn is worse than Hanan's. Let God's kindness lead you to repentance. The right response is humble submission. Cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you see Jesus this morning as the only one who shows mercy? That he only shows mercy to you? This passage is intended to help us see him as God's conquering king as well. He's not just kind. He's righteous in judgment. He brings certain judgment on those who reject his kindness. We must hold the biblical balance. 
we must. Yes, he is kind, but he is also strong. Strong to save, but also strong in righteous judgment. But here again, the beauty of the gospel message, even in our Old Testament, see again his kindness to those who ignore and belittle and scorn and even rebel against him. It's there at the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's an invitation. Because God establishes his rule through his king, find your refuge in him alone. Hear the invitation to find shelter in him. He's mighty to save all who humble themselves before him. Just think of it. Only our God can take a historic record of an evil response like we've seen here in chapter 10 and lead us right back to himself again. Our God can allow the wicked response of sinful men to the gracious offer of kindness to his king in order to bring us to salvation. Peter proclaims this very truth in Acts 4. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Just as in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. It's the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, we're invited to find our refuge in him. That comes only when we submit to God's king. Surrender before he takes the field against you. Hear the warning of this passage. In the next two chapters, we're going to see God take the field against David. We're going to see God respond with righteous discipline of his king. Chapter 10 prepares us to see this story of warning. So will you hear it? Will you allow the kindness of God through his king to lead you to repentance? Or will you face the awful consequences of rejection and scorn of his kindness to you? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we rejoice in King Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile again, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Father, help us to have a biblical, balanced view of a king who, yes, offers incredible, undeserved kindness But that kindness demands one response. It demands submission. A perfectly holy, good, and just, and loving sovereign must not, cannot, will not accept rebellion from his people, from those he created. If he is to be who he declares himself to be, he must act in righteousness and judgment. Father, help us to tremble at your word and with humility respond and submit to our king. There are areas of our lives where we are tolerating sin. 
We are playing with it. We are embracing it. Father, forgive us. Lead us to repentance. Help us to be warned and respond with wisdom to that warning. Perhaps there are those who don't know you in this room. We should be confident that there are. May they turn to you from their sin. This morning, hear this warning. See the great kindness of our King and flee from the wrath to come. Give us ears to hear that we might know you and love you and serve you as our true King. In Jesus' name, amen.